This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to jump right into verse 18. We hurried through this right at the tail end of last week's study because I wanted to get into the next, I wanted to get into the next paragraph, but there's teaching here that really warrants digging into at greater depth. Now, and it, it got pretty deep in the teaching last week as well about children calling to one another in the marketplace. That really, that really blossomed into a, into a good teaching. That that's, that's stuff that's good to remember. The world is serious and life is serious and far too many people are playing. Far too many people are playing in the places of serious business and at a time where people need to be sober-minded about eternal things and even a lot of temporal things far more than they actually are. But that's a natural consequence or it's a natural, it's a natural byproduct. Unfortunately, it's a natural byproduct of prosperity at a national level or at a whole cultural level. Large-scale prosperity breeds this kind of thinking. And that breeds the kind of, uh, it breeds the kind of behavior that we read about in some of the New Testament prophecies about how in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be, they will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That happens whenever the serious business of just getting by gets tossed aside and we, and we fall in love with fun and we fall in love with uh, having a good time and being laid back and doing what we want to do uh, rather than having to deal with the hardships of life. Now, I'm not saying that hardships are fun. They're not. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not wishing for harder times to come upon us uh, as though that will somehow get us to be more mindful of eternal things. But... That does happen. What happens whenever there's a natural disaster? And look at, look at it from the perspective of the history of cultures. What happens whenever there was a famine or a plague or a war in which people suffered heavy losses? Even if they won the war, they still suffered heavy losses. Or if they lost the war? What happened in, in times of national disaster or of tragedy? Well, people got real serious real fast, didn't they? And if we need an example of that in our own time, to a very diminished extent, all right, what happened right after 9-11? Oh, yeah. Two airplanes flew into two towers and one into the Pentagon and one went down in a field in Pennsylvania and suddenly America remembered its churches again. Oh, my goodness. Phones were blowing up. Pray, 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 pray. And on Sunday morning, people packed the houses of God. And even I remember where I was at the time we were in this tiny, tiny little church in South Tampa in this nasty little building that had roaches and all of that, but that's the place that we had at that time, and so that's where we met. And, uh, and we, even had, we even had some of that in our church. Some people showing up and looking for God and looking for comfort and for solace. But then, you know, the disaster blows over and other things go on, and then the people that were serious with God remained. And those that were just looking for a quick fix for their conscience, they were down the road and nothing flat. And that's the way that it goes. Okay, understandably. But the world is still a serious place and life is still serious. 
And so who should be the most serious people in it? Well, it ought to be believers. Again, that, again, I'm not trying to take that into a ditch that, all right, that means that laughter is a sin. There are believers that are like that. There have been believers that have been like that, you know, that their spirituality was measured in the length of their face, you know. I'm spiritual because I haven't laughed since 1976. Really, dude? No. When the Bible tells us that laughter doeth good like a medicine. Do you understand the balance that we're talking about? It's being sober-minded. Yes, the Bible tells us, and the New Testament tells us to be sober-minded. Okay, yes, but what, 24-7? So what, you, mean, you can't laugh when, when your kid does something that's outrageous and hilarious, like runs into a wall and then falls over? I mean, that, that's, that's awesome right there, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about. I was chasing my daughter once. Um, we were living in, this was 10 years ago, we were living in a townhouse, and uh, I was chasing her uh, from the kitchen into the living room, and, and she was laughing. It was great, and we were all laughing. It was a wonderful time, and, but you know, you don't look behind you when you're running away, right? And she, because then you run into stuff, and that's what she did. She was looking behind me, laughing, ha, 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 and then she ran, blam, right into this, this wrought iron uh, the, the, the railing, the banister, or whatever it is that goes up the stairs, she ran right into that, just blam, and fell over, and, and it, it hurt. And, you know, I didn't laugh at her, but it was still funny, right? As long as there's no serious injury involved, it can be hilarious. So, laughter doeth good like a medicine, even when it's at somebody else's expense. But remember, if you do laugh, you'll probably reap it. And someone's going to laugh at you one day when you fall out of that chair, when you, you slam your face into the door that was a pull door, not a push one. You know what I'm talking about. But being serious at the right time. Being sober-minded at times when sobriety of mind is called for. You know, taking seriously those things that are serious and and, and being, it's, and a lot of that is aided just by the, by the process of growing up. There's an awful lot of the Christian sanctification that is assisted by just growing up and taking on more and more adult responsibility. And then that tends to, it tends to push out a lot of the, the luxuries of immaturity of mind that we may have indulged in up into that point. And that, that's not just in Christianity, that's life in general, but a lot of that's in Christianity as well. And, who should be the adults in the marketplace of the world? Well, it ought to be believers. Because those are the people that make decisions and who run things. Those are the people who shape the world. They shape the world that other people play in. Amen? All right, let's move off of that because that was all review. That was a, a, a principal part of last week's instruction. But then in verse 18, and we touched on this a little bit. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. And I know we dug into this a little bit. Here, Jesus shows us that with some people you just can't win. With some people you just can't win. We look at John the Baptist and his character and his manner of life and the ministry that he executed. You look at him and what was he? He was a rough man living in rough conditions. He was not polished. 
He was not uh, in, in the conventional sense. He wasn't a professional. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't wearing slick, shiny suits and standing in established churches, speaking to crowds of thousands of people that wanted to hear his motivational speaking. He came rough in, I think, in, in, in the... In, Animal skins, wasn't he wearing like camel's hair, garments of, uh, you know, his, his belt was of leather and all of that. And, and he came uh, eating, he didn't eat in fine establishments of fine dining. He wasn't down there at the, uh, at the ribbon chop house, but he wasn't eating in places like that. And he wasn't wearing expensive suits and he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to fit a mold of refinement. And that's what was needed at that time, was not that kind of a mold, because that's what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and these other various religious sects, a lot of them placed a very heavy emphasis on looking a certain way and being dressed a certain way. Not to say that all of that was bad or wrong, but that was their highest priority. And so in contrast to that, here comes John the Baptist in animal clothes and hair, you know, how do you describe this, you know, rough clothing and eating locusts and wild honey and getting right to the business of the matter of the kingdom and of the gospel of the kingdom. And they still found fault with him. He didn't come in excess of fine clothing. He didn't come in excess of material possessions in any, in any of that. But they found fault with him saying, well, he's got a devil. He's possessed. Like, really? Really, guys? Some of your most profound prophets, some of your most impactful prophets that you had throughout your nation's history were the same way. But just because John comes the same way, you're going to find fault with him and say that he had a devil. And that, that allowed them to dismiss everything that he had to say. But then Jesus came in neither extreme. He didn't come in rough clothing like John. Neither did he come in, you know, just short of royal clothing like the Pharisees. He came in moderation of behavior. And he came in moderation of appearance and moderation of appetites. And they found fault with him. They ascribed to him the worst excesses, didn't they? What did it say here? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and of sinners. And Really? I mean, why didn't they just tack on to the end of that? Oh yeah, and he eats babies too. And I'm sure I saw him not at the local skinhead rally. Really? Well, he looked like him, so he must have been. You know, it's like, <laughs> you can't stay away. F you can't talk about this stuff and stay away from politics. Because look at the ideological left. Look at how, all right, Donald Trump hadn't even announced his Supreme Court pick to replace, and I don't even remember these people's names, and I, I probably should, I'm not saying that to my credit, but I, I just, I don't delve that deep into it. You need to stay informed as Christians, it's good to stay informed, we can't stick our head in the sand, but um, I tend to go all in when I go all in on anything, and so it's best for me to go all in on the Word of God for your sake as well as for my sake, because if I take an interest in politics, then it's just all downhill from there, and so uh, I, I skim it at a surface level, try to stay informed, but do you remember how they were reacting? President Trump hadn't even announced his pick yet. And the people on the political and ideological left already had their hate responses drafted, typed, and ready. 
It's just that where the name of the candidate or where the name of his Supreme Court pick was, they had some X's or a line. It was a blank waiting to be filled in. In other words, it didn't matter who he was going to pick. It didn't matter who he was going to pick. They were going to hate him. And they were going to hate President Trump for picking him. They had their guns loaded and ready to go. It's the same kind of thinking that was afflicting these people here. The same kind of thinking. John came in extreme self-denial and they said, you've got a devil. Jesus came in moderation, not in excess, and they accused him of excess. Okay, so here, come John, here comes John in one way and they accused him of the worst possible thing that they possibly could because they couldn't accuse him of being drunk or being a glutton because... They never, saw him in, they never saw him at meat or drink. And all he ate was bugs and wild honey. How can you accuse a man of being excessive and gluttonous in that? But they still found something to accuse him of unjustly. And the same thing with our Lord. Here came the Son of Man eating and drinking. And they said, he's a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. He's, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's going to turn the whole world upside down. This man is the devil himself. Drama. Oh, drama, oh. Oh, wait, that wasn't quite how the song went. But that was their song, wasn't it? They loved it. You remember what Jesus was talking about, about the kids in the marketplace? We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. They loved drama just like anybody else. And they ate it up with a shovel. And that's why they had professional mourners in their culture. I mean, it's part of that. And not just them. The Greeks, the Greeks loved it in their, in their theater. They loved tragedy as well as comedy and things like that. And it's all part of the human experience. But, you know, some people you just can't win. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're moderate. It doesn't matter if you're extreme in the realm of self-denial. They're going to find something to blame you about. Look at the Amish, okay? And I'm not saying that the, the Amish are, are paragons of Christianity. There's some things that they're really off base on, but look at them. They're, they are known as a culture and as a community. They are known for um, extreme separation and self-denial in certain things. And, and there's a way that they do things and, and they extract some of it from the Bible. Some of it, they do, it's a cultural thing that they're just holding on to with all their might for good or ill. But there are people, you know, you don't find Amish drug dealers, do you? You don't find Mennonite mass murderers, do you? You, you don't find it among them. There, there are certain, now there, that's not, again, that's not to say that they've got everything down perfect. They need Jesus just as, much, just as much as anybody else. But the point here is that, you know, there's things that you just don't find. When's the last time that you saw an Amish hooker down there, uh, downtown near the, the Kamiya shelter? There's things that you just don't see in life, you know? Well, yet people still find things to find fault with them about. Oh, they're inbred. Oh, they're this. They stink because they don't take showers. They don't, they don't, they're just like, come on. What, would, what would, would it be so hard, you know, for people to try extra hard to find the good and the positive in people? You know what I mean? There's, a certain, there's an Islamic imam that's out there, and I'm not promoting him necessarily. I'm certainly not promoting his religion. Islam is of the devil, plain and simple. But there's a particular Islamic imam that's out there who has absolutely dedicated himself to the path of peace. Absolutely dedicated himself to the path of peace. And, and 
to, the, to an extent that he confronts and debates with other Muslims that are in any way extreme or in, in, in or approaching the realm of terrorism or anything like that. And he blasts them and he does it openly. And I don't know if it's, you know, it could honestly be an act. It could be an act. But I doubt that it is. It seems like, knowing his history and where he comes from, it seems like he's genuine in that, in that pursuit. So uh, he's, he's very much in favor of reform. And so, man, if there's Muslims out there, if there are Muslims out there that can have that kind of a mindset, then why can't we? And maybe it's naivety on his part, too. It's not to say that we want to be naive, but why can't we look for common ground where it's possible? It's not to say that we just accept anything that comes down the pike. I'm okay, you're okay, and it's all good where God's concerned. That's not true. But Christians really are tolerant. We put up with a lot, don't we? We tolerate a lot from a lot of people. doesn't mean that we have to accept it or put our stamp of approval on it. But it does mean that we're supposed to be children of peace. We're not the ones out there looking for conflicts and looking for a fight. So when that Mormon comes to your door, that Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, or that weirdo from the Church of God, the Mother, comes to your door, we don't come to the door looking for a fight, right? Ooh, JW's at my door. I'm going to show them what the deal is. Whoa, is that being children of peace? Or is that you whipping out your sword of the Lord and looking to deliver some righteous justice? Come on now. Now there's a right way to do that, but you better make sure you know your stuff before you wade into that kind of thing. Because a lot of them spend quite a bit of time studying their corrupted translations of Scripture, and they have their pat answers down, and so it can get very ugly. It's good to just be a peaceful person and to just be a child of peace. So back to our text here. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he's gluttonous, he's a drunk, he's a wine-bibber, he's a friend of publicans and sinners. But the, the concluding line in this teaching, right, the, the first lesson there is about you know, some people you just can't win. So the best that you can do is to just serve God in patience and humility and have a ready answer for the hope that's in you. That's the best you can do with some folks. If you try talking to them about it, they're going to blast you. They're going to pull out you know, some stuff that they studied from some God-hater or some atheist, and they're going to slap you about the head and shoulders with it, and you just can't win. So you just live your Christian life. You don't live it in secret. You don't have to. Not in this country. You don't have to. And don't let anyone bully you into it. You don't have to self-censor, and you don't have to let others self-censor you. Okay? Don't let them intimidate you into silence. But with some folks, it's good to just live your life and live it uprightly and live it in the light. And they'll see it. You don't have to be that weirdo that openly does everything in the name of Jesus. Who praise God, I'm coming to work in the name of Jesus. All right, time to clock in in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I sit down at my desk and turn on my computer in the name of Jesus. I'm going to do my work. Woo, in the name of Jesus, amen. And you're saying that like all the time. Like, hey, good morning in the name of Jesus. All right, brother, you know, hey, points for the zeal. Really, points for the zeal. But can you just not be weird? You know, we're already a peculiar people. And, and that's fine. That's fine. Jesus said we were, and that's fine. I, I don't mind it. Let's not mind it. But that doesn't mean that we're trying to be a parody and a caricature of ourselves, right? Right? 
We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like that. Be as normal as you can. Just be right with God. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to get zealous, and zeal is good, and I'm all for zeal, and I would that people had a, had a real and a tangible zeal. They want to be like that, but you know, th- there's time to just rein it in, be sober, be just be normal. Be normal. You don't have to rebuke everybody in the name of Jesus, that, or at all for that matter, just because they do something wrong. There's a time for that, but that's not like our normal mode. Hey, hey, heathen, you just took a bite out of that Big Mac without praying over it. What are you, heathen? I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You're ungrateful. Whoa. I want to talk about making, making church a stench in the nostrils of your community. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be people like that. We want to love folks and reach out to them in love. But sometimes, really, the best you can do is to just live your life for God in patience and in humility and have a ready answer for when people come to you with a question, and that happens. That happens. They might not know anything about you except that you're the guy who reads your Bible in the break room when you're on break or on your lunch hour, and they see you doing it, and they've got some crisis going on in their life that you don't even know about, and then one day they come to you wanting to talk to you about it. That's happened to me. Not a whole lot, but it's happened to me. Just live your life before them in the light, upright and honest, and see what God can do. But the real lesson here, there's about a couple of different lessons that come off of this, come right out of this last line. But wisdom is justified of her children. That's what he says at the tail end of this. John came neither eating or drinking, they found fault with him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they found fault with him. Okay, but wisdom is justified of her children. This is what he's getting to. This is the, the, the point of his message. That, what does that mean? Well, that which wisdom and wise decisions produce, okay, shines a light of justification and understanding on her who gave it birth. Now, that's a lot of words. It's like, what, what did you just say? Okay, wisdom is justified of her children. Well, what are the results of wisdom? The results of wisdom is wise decisions, you know, wise decisions that, that produce uh, a certain kind of fruit or results in your life. Well, those things are what shine a light on wisdom, justifying her, okay? And if you didn't catch that, catch this, okay? Wise is as wise does, right? You've heard that saying, stupid is as stupid does. Stupid, stupid Stupid actions and stupid decisions kind of shine a stupid light on the person who makes them. It's the same way with wisdom. Wise actions, wise decisions shine a good light on the person who exercised that wisdom to begin with. Wisdom is justified of her children. So you may be mocked and ridiculed now. You might be mocked and ridiculed now for living an upright life, for being absolutely honest under every and any circumstance whatsoever, never permitting yourself to speak a dishonest word or commit a dishonest act because that's what Christians do. Because lying's a sin. You can speak a lie. You can make a lie. According to the, uh, the sensational nightingales, you can even sing a lie. If any of you have ever heard of them, they were an old, uh, they were an old black gospel band from many, many years ago. All their songs sounded the same. Sometimes we joke about them, but they had some good songs. They had some good songs. They're the ones that sang, hold on a little while longer, or for just a little while, I forget how, how it went. 
and then everything is going to be all right. No, it's not Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. It's a different song. It's a different artist, a different spirit, okay? But they had some good songs. But they, they, had, that, they had one of those talking interludes in the middle of their songs where the, the singer is now pontificating and he's talking to the audience and he was talking about how he used to sing in the church choir. Until one day, there's grandma or his auntie or whoever it is in, in that culture said something like, son, must have been his mom or his grandma then, so, or maybe still his auntie, I don't know. Son, don't you know that you can sing a lie as well as tell one? And she was getting on his case. She was reproving him because he's up in the church choir singing all these songs about love and grace and the, the goodness of God and all of that. But he was living a lousy, rotten sinner life. He hadn't even been saved. He wasn't born again. He was just being raised up in church culture. But he had not been changed in his own heart. And so we might be mocked and ridiculed for being absolutely honest or for living an upright life or not running to the same excess of riot meaning, you know, not partying and all of that that other people do, not wasting our earnings on foolishness like gambling, you know, going down, well, well, I never go to the casinos because that's a bad testimony, but I'll still, go to the, I'll still go to the gas station and get a scratch ticket. Wait, why? That's gambling. That's foolishness. That's hard-earned money you worked for or that your spouse worked for or that somebody worked for. And then to go and just throw it away into that kind of behavior, which usually is representative of greed, and is also reflective of something that those Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. They gambled for his clothes. So people might find fault with you for not doing those things because you want to be wise. Wise with your life. Wise with your resources. Wise with your earnings. But... Let them find fault because, and, and this is where the teaching gets particularly deep, okay? Your life is going to bear the fruit of those wise decisions. Now, listen to me, please, please, please. Listen to me very carefully on this, okay? Your life will bear the fruit of your wise decisions. In the short term, though, not so much because things like that take time to produce fruit, amen? They do. I know we live in an accelerated society. We want everything like now, man. I'm in the drive-thru. Give me my food. Get out of my way. I got to go. I got to be here. Church is coming up or I got an appointment or I'm, I'm late to work and, and, we, and, and then the internet and everything else. And so everything is just accelerated and there's all of this instant gratification that's there and that's something that plagues society in a certain way. Yes, I understand that. But be patient with the, be patient with the results of your wise decisions. Be patient. Be patient with yourself and be patient with the fruit, the results of your wise decisions. They will come. But who plants a tree on Saturday and has limes hanging on it on Sunday? My wife and I bought a lime tree. I wasn't planning on talking about this. I just love how this fits in, okay? My wife and I bought a lime tree like four years ago or something like that. It was before we left Washington. We were, we were in this lime kick. It did some kind of something to do with our diet. And we were, so we were drinking a lot of water with some lime squeezed in it so it didn't taste like something gross that came out of the tap or something sulfuric that came out of the well, you know, or like eggs or something like that or smelled like rotten eggs, whatever. So we'd, we'd put some lime in it. So we bought this little lime tree, right, this little potted lime tree. Having limes on it, it's this big, you know. But it's like we had this notion that it's going to be dropping limes like eggs. You know, it's not a hen. It's not going to be giving us a lime or two a day. 
but it took time. It took time and it took sunlight and the right conditions and all of that. But the main thing that it took was time. And then in time, it now it's about this tall. It's not this tall, but it's this tall. It's still not something you're going to, you know, it's still not dropping limes every day. Not even full-grown lime trees do that except in their season. It takes time for something that bears fruit to bear fruit. And so time requires patience. So you keep making your wise decisions now and be patient because in the long run, in the medium, sometimes even in the short, sometimes even in the short, some wise decisions have an immediate payoff. Some of them really do, but other ones, it takes, it takes a while longer. It takes six months. It takes two or three years. It'll take 10 or 20 years. I'm 25 years into my life for God. I'm 25 years into my life for God, and there are some things that are just now beginning to bear fruit, and that's fine. That's not a complaint. It's the way that God has ordained it. It was the same way with Abraham. It was the same way with Abraham. It took time, and we have to have patience. We've got to have faith that God has the best timing anyway, but the compound effect, you see, here's the, here's the thing about it, okay? The compound effects of the fruits of your wise decisions. Okay, so you've got somebody that's been in the faith for six months and they've made a couple, two or three wise decisions and a bunch of foolish decisions because that's what, that's what people do whenever they're new to anything, right? You're going to make some bad calls and blunder a few things really badly and then the devil comes in and tries to destroy your Christianity with it by crushing your will to go on, by making you feel like a horrible person and a failure. You just blow him off and never pay him any attention. Okay, you pay attention to the Spirit of God, the conviction of the Holy Ghost, okay, and to the words, to the word, well, to the Word of God as it's preached, taught, and as you read it, right? As it's preached, as it's taught, and as you read it. That's what you pay attention to. And you have a question about, about it, you bring it to somebody that knows. You bring it to one of the, so, well, we're all supposed to be priests of the New Testament. And so, but you, you, we've talked about that before. The priest's lips are supposed to keep knowledge. And so that man back there, an associate pastor, has a few answers. If it's something that's of a pastoral nature, he'll refer you to me. But you bring it. You don't just wonder and wonder what it means. You know, bring it to somebody who knows. That's why we're here. It's one of the reasons we're here. It's one of the reasons why we're here. But you listen to those voices. You don't listen to the devil. And it's the devil that's always going to try to tear you down and tell you that you're a horrible, wretched failure and that you just need to quit this thing and go home because you were never really into it anyway. That's what he'll tell you, but you know better. Amen? Amen. Or you wouldn't be here tonight. Because usually, and I'm not saying this always, and I'm certainly not, this is not to give anybody a big head or to promote pride or anything like that, but the folks that are in Bible study, it says something. It says something of their seriousness and their dedication to their personal devotion to their walk with the Lord. Now, so I, I, that, again, don't take that, please, don't take that, slap it on your chest as a badge of honor and then judge everybody who's not in Bible study with it. It's not for that. It's not about that. Some people have work schedules that interfere. Some people have, there are a number of things. And there are some, there are some believers out there in the world that never go to a Bible study, but they spend more time in their word than those of us who do go to Bible study. So you, you, I'm not saying that to be taken and used the wrong way, but it means something when someone is in the Bible study at the church. It means something when they come to the special class that's taught once a month. 
School of virtue. It means something when, when there's something that's above and beyond. It's just, just let that, file that where thou wilt in your mind, in your, in your heart. Hide that saying in your heart. But he says wisdom is justified of her children. The compound effects of your years of wise decision as dedicated children of the Most High God. The compound effects will produce massive results in the long run if you don't sabotage them with bad decisions. And sometimes even if you do. Because sometimes God just has mercy and shields us from some consequences of some bad decisions. Do you know what I'm saying? The whole point of it is wisdom is justified of her children. And if you've been in the faith 10 years, you're already 10 years into this thing. That's good. If you're new to the faith and you've been in it, you, you've been a child of God for less than a year or six months or however long or maybe just one or two years, start making your wise decisions now. You already have, actually. You've already started. You're all, you've already started. You've already started crafting your life according to the Word of God and letting God lead you in that respect. Don't stop. And don't get discouraged. Some people have. I'm thinking of a man right now, and we're, we're going to wrap up here in just a second just by talking about him. Uh, and his is a tragic case. I knew him for years. I knew him for years. He served God for years, and he was a good brother for a long time. But he'd had it in his mind that it was some kind of an exchange system, that if he did this, then God would do this. And, 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 and while that's largely or often true, okay, it's good not to think that way because when you think that way, then you find yourself establishing a timetable and when God doesn't fit your timetable, you get mad and you walk away. We can't be like that. And we can't be of the mind that we're going to try to accelerate it either. Just start planting your trees in the Lord. Start planting those lime trees if that's what you like and water them. And make sure they get light. And make sure they get what they need. And don't sabotage them. Okay? Don't plant a pine tree in the midst of it so that it acidifies the ground and kills everything else with its pine needles. You know what I'm talking about. All this is a metaphor. Start now. Cultivate it. Be patient. And in the long run, the compound effects will be something to behold. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible Studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving